Everybody, welcome back to the Principal Podcast. My guest today is the real estate god. That's right. You heard it right. It's not a name. It's the real estate god. Say hello. How's it going, man? <laughs> it's going great, man. Pleasure to have you on. Um, really, really excited about this conversation today, not because it's going to be about real estate, but the real reason that I wanted to talk to you is because I think you're a very, very independent thinker, um, very rational, and you challenge a lot of conventional wisdom that people tend to just take as gospel. Um, and so for that reason, I'm really excited to have you on, man. And um, please feel free to introduce anything that you think I might have missed. No, I think you hit it pretty well. Let's get into it. If you read any of your tweets from the past two years, or especially a lot of your hot takes, like if you're subscribed to your email list or the Real Estate Guide University, which I have been a member of, and it's fantastic. Everybody who's listening to this, who's interested in real estate should absolutely subscribe. Um, it looks like you grew up with a chip on your shoulder. Talk to us a little bit about your background. I think in a way, yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, I, I don't think it was any specific thing that happened. Uh, mm -hmm. I think in general, I just always kind of like to, to a large degree, like detested authority um, and to a large degree, just thought I could do more than anyone who was around me was saying I could do. You know what I mean? It's one of those things where it's not like it was my parents. Like my parents were always very supportive, but like school teachers, anyone like that. It's just like whenever someone said, oh, you can't do this, it just made me think, like, yes, I can. Like, and I'm just going to go do it. Mm -hmm. So I think it just kind of builds off stuff like that. And the more someone kind of says you can't do this or this is the right path. And the more you ignore them and you realize you're right, it just kind of emboldens you more and more and more. And mm -hmm. it kind of becomes like a self-fulfilling prophecy where you just, you're so far outside of what other people think is a conventional path or the conventional way to do it or the conventional timeline um, that you just, you kind of get the sense of self-confidence. That's pretty, it's definitely founded, but it's also, it also can, can get dangerous. Yep. Yep. I think it's really important to highlight that, you did note that you got this self-confidence after you did a bunch of these things, right? After you challenged conventionalism and proved to yourself that you were right. Can you recall the first big decision that you made that kind of um, spiraled this way of thinking? I know you just said that like after you you make a decision and then you, you prove to yourself that you're right, it starts to compound on itself. Yeah, I can think, I can think of a few. I had, um, I remember when I was applying to colleges, um, I mean, I had great grades in high school, obviously, because yeah. I ended up going to a good college, but it's hard to get into any good college. So I had applied early decision to an Ivy. And the I remember I distinctly remember this. I had like a long conversation with the uh, the guidance counselor, who I just thought was a total joke. Um, and she was telling me, she's like, you're never going to get in. Like, don't apply there, blah, blah, blah. I ended up getting in. Um, and it's just like things like that were like, this is like their profession. And they're just so dead wrong about it. Um, it just makes you kind of lose confidence in anything like that. I guess the next like big example I had was um, where I kind of bucked the trend and was right is we were basically doing recruiting during uh, sophomore summer. Um, and that's kind of when all the, the banks, the private equity firms are doing their recruiting and everyone's going to like Goldman, Blackstone, like the whole thing. And I was just like, this is such a joke. Like I'm not going to like beg one of these people to like be their employee. Like this is so ridiculous. Um, so I kind of went against the, but it completely went against the grain Went with like a way smaller firm, had like between like 500 million to billion AUM, um, but specifically did it because I wanted to be able to, to learn to do it myself. Um, and I wanted to be able to rise up quickly because to me, those are the two biggest things, right? You want responsibility early and you want to be able to learn early. Um, and all my friends who were, went to Blackstone, they went to Starwood, they went to Goldman, whatever you want to call it. I mean, they're all still working corporate jobs. None of them can get out because they didn't. They're doing something where they need a corporate umbrella around them to do it. Whereas on my end, I was able to rise up extremely quickly. There was almost no one ahead of me at the firm, right? So I ended up getting to a point where I, I forgot the exact time, but it was around two years in, I became a junior partner, right? Which was almost unheard of. Um, and right after that, pretty much a few years after that, I was able to leave. Um, so it's one of those things where if you buck the trend and if you kind of keep doing it and keep doing and keep kind of pushing the envelope, you realize that like pretty much all these barriers people up, people kind of construct are just, they're completely mental. Um, and, and once you kind of kind of get outside the grain and realize that you're the only one who's going to save yourself, or like, it's all about what you learn. It's all about your responsibility. Um, then you'll make choices in a very different way than you would if you only care about credibility and, um, 
and credentials, which is how almost everyone else makes choices, which I consider completely incorrect. You seem to me like a person who doesn't really have a whole lot of limiting beliefs. Um, and you don't let other people put their limiting beliefs on you either. And so hopefully this conversation can inspire that, that concept in a lot of other people. Um, the first of those conventional beliefs that's commonly held is what you just mentioned, prioritizing a high salary and prestige over actually learning anything, right? You just said that a lot of your friends at Goldman, Starwood, et cetera, some of the, some of the most prestigious finance firms are still working and can't find a way to get out because they didn't learn a tangible skill that they can go apply to create, operate, sell, buy assets. Exactly. And I think that's the biggest thing is it comes down to like, if you go for the credential path, right, you're going to make good money, but you're always relying on someone else. That just, that's what you're agreeing to when you take that path. Meanwhile, if you just say, all right, I'm willing to take a little less money, a little less prestige, but I'm going to learn everything myself. All the responsibility is going to be on me. Um, you're never going to have to rely on anyone the rest of your life. And that's what I wanted. And that's one of the reasons why I think like everyone who's like, oh, the path is, is X. Like in, in private equity, it's usually, all right, you do two years of banking, then two years of private equity, then two years of business school, then two years of private equity afterward. And then you figure out what you're going to do. It's like, what are you guys like insane? You can't figure that out beforehand. You can't like, what's taking you so long, you know? And I've always thought like the more, the more like almost not even obstacles, but the more like, I guess, steps you put in your path, just the more you're afraid of actually doing it yourself, right? Because no one who's, who actually wants to do it is going to say, oh, I'm going to wait eight years to do it. If you want to do it, you're going to do it immediately. Um, so I think anytime you're, you're kind of following a path like that, it means you're kind of scared. You're not self-confident. You have low self-esteem, right? Anyone who thought they could do it themselves would do it immediately. So mm -hmm. you're kind of admitting you have low self-confidence and even worse, you're enabling it by waiting even longer. Yep. And it's that initial kind of like leap of faith that I think most people struggle with. Going back to the comment on like developing expertise, Malcolm Gladwell's rule, I believe it is, is it the 10,000 hour rule? I think that's kind of what popularized this idea that we have to have 10 to 15 years of experience before we jump into anything on our own. After a two to three year period, you, you must have accumulated the bulk of the knowledge that you're going to have. And you're only going to keep refining your skills as you go on for sure. Like there is expertise that will be built over a 10 year period. But to say that you need 10 years of experience to go do anything on your own is just like, it's kind of absurd when you think about it. It's, it's also just experience by itself. Like if you're an idiot and you're experienced, you're just an idiot with experience. Like it doesn't, it's, it's <laughs> like, it doesn't help you. You know what I mean? Like if you're a smart person, you just don't need that much time to get up to where the, the rest of the population is. It's almost like you have two people, right? Like the most unathletic person, you know, and the most athletic person, you know, if you give each of them a basketball, like how long is it going to take the athletic person to learn? How long is it going to take the unathletic person to learn? Right? Like the athletic person can probably do it in a, a year or two and be the best player on the court. Um, so as long as you're talented, you can just ignore all those things, right? It's, it's all about just getting the reps in, um, putting yourself in a position where you actually have the responsibility for it to matter. So you can actually have a real feedback loop, because I think that's one of the biggest things that talented people do wrong is they choose a path where they're, they're sheltered from responsibility early on. Mm -hmm. um, and you, your feedback loop, it just doesn't work, right? If you don't actually have like, oh, I made a wrong decision, X happened, and now I can recalibrate. If you never have that, it's, the experience is worthless. Right? And that's why a lot of people's experience in these corporate jobs is essentially worthless because they're not making a decision. They're just processing data and then they're doing nothing with it. So it's like, it's pointless. You're not learning anything. You can't do it yourself. And you've never made a mistake that actually mattered. Mm -hmm. So it's, 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 it's almost pointless. Yeah. I think a critical part of your whole, your whole thesis here is that to know that you're talented, you have to be in a position where you've made decisions to prove to yourself that you're talented, right? You can't just say, oh, I'm talented because I've worked in this industry for five years. That doesn't mean anything unless you've done something with your so-called talent. And that's what's going to convince you that you have the faith, the belief in yourself to go try whatever it is on your own. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think the biggest tell that someone's incompetent is when they talk about their experience instead of their results. Like whenever I hear that someone's, I've been in the industry 15 years, or a total loser. Like if, if you're actually good, you're going to be showing me your returns. And if your returns are good, I don't care if you've been in the industry for two years, 15 years, 20 years. Some of the dumbest people I knew were managing directors who've been there for 30 years. Mm -hmm. Total idiots. Like they would lose the company money every year, but they were just there because of some political reason. Um, so being experienced does, doesn't mean jack in, in my eyes. Obviously, it's good. And if you're a smart guy, it'll help you. But just having the experience alone, I don't think it means anything.
Um, we covered the first of these conventional beliefs, but let's talk about something that you wrote an email about. I think this might've been a couple years ago at this point, but something that jumped out at me from your article on engineering luck. The highest ROI items in life have no clear ROI return on investment at the beginning. Can you expand on that? Yeah. So basically, if you think about it, right, anything that has like a clear ROI gets arbitraged, right? Like if, if someone knows what the ROI of a specific action is, you can price it out, right? So they'll pay up or they'll, people will flood into that space until the return comes down, right? Because it's known. Anything that's not known, people won't rush into because there's no way for them to calculate how to arbitrage the ROI. So an example would be starting a business, right? It's kind of impossible to calculate the ROI of that, which is why so few people do it, right? Because it's, it's one of those things where it's risky because you actually can't calculate what the end result's going to be. Um, there are a ton of other examples like that, but that's basically the gist of it, right? Once you have anything where the returns are known, it's, it's shot, right? People are going to arbitrage it. So how do you know which decisions have a high potential return, although you might not be able to quantify what they, what they truly might be on paper. Like you can't build a model for, you know, joining a golf club, for example. Right. But how do you know which items are for you individually, potentially the highest ROI? So I think a lot of that comes from intuition, which some of that is you're born with. Right. And the rest of it is kind of what I was talking about where you need a feedback loop, right? Say I've been, for example, I was at my, say I was at my job for two years, right? And I'm in a position where my investment team is really small. I'm getting a ton of responsibility. I have a ton of feedback loops, right? I, say I get 30 feedback loops over that time. And the person at another firm only gets one feedback loop because he was only position responsibility for one of them. Like my intuition is going to be way better than his, right? So, so much of it's training your intu intuition to recognize those moments and if you never allow yourself to train, you never allow yourself to make a mistake, your intuition is it's, it's garbage, right? So I, I think that's the easiest way to kind of start recognizing those things that have a high, high ROI is to put yourself in a position where you make a lot of mistakes, where you have to make decisions, where the responsibility is yours, and you start recognizing trends. And you start recognizing, all right, last time, like this did that. Now I'm going to kind of move it over. I'm going to tweak it to do this. And eventually you get put in a position where you, it's, it's hard to explain, but you almost know that the ROI is going to be high without knowing what the ROI is. What's the kind, what are the steps to building that intuition, right? Like once you've, obviously you've got to have some sort of feedback loops that you can tap into and kind of understand, okay, this is the maximum point of leverage for me here. And if I apply that leverage correctly, this has the potential to amplify my returns theoretically, right? How can you build that intuition quickly? I mean, I think it's just, it's a lot of it's repetition, right? So an example would be kind of knowing a good example would be like finding a good mentor, right? And mm -hmm. knowing they're like legitimate. You have to kind of like interact with a lot of people to know who's legitimate, right? So you need to be all around the space. You need to be talking to people every day, um, talking to different firms, different brokers, different principals. And like once you get a good enough grasp of the space and good enough grasp of like what deals make money and what don't, you just kind of see who's working on those type of deals and who has the best firm structure for those type of deals. Um, so that, that would be like an example. And you, you kind of just by the end of it, you have so many repetitions in that it becomes almost second nature and you're not even thinking about it, right? You just see it. You're like, oh, wow, that's, that's a very good setup. That's a good structure. This guy must be smart. Um, and that's, that's kind of what drew me to my mentor in the first place. And because I'd seen, I don't even know how many people at that point who had run similar operations and the private equity firms, whatever you want to call it. Um, but there were things about their structure that I had noticed weren't good. And I'd seen from experience weren't good. Mm -hmm. um, as well as things they focused on, how they raised money. It, it all kind of filters in. Beyond that, once you've built that level of intuition, it's fair to say that it's time to move on. Yeah, so I, I think you start getting really diminishing returns, right? And this is one of the reasons why I think you only need two to three years of experience, which I have more than that, obviously, by the way, before I left. But yep. um, that's why I only really think you need that. Because basically what happens is so much of your intuition is built let's say like 80 to 90% of it's built over those first two to three years. And then after that, like obviously incrementally, like you keep building it, but it's the ROI is just, it's, it's diminishing returns every single year after that. Right. Um, so it, it's, it's one of those things where you can, you can stay if you want, but it's really procrastination because that extra 10%, you might as well just get by yourself instead of getting it behind someone else. Mm -hmm. I think this flows really, really well into the next um, piece of conventional wisdom that I'd love to cover your perspective on risk. Yeah. So I think 
I think risk is almost always, once again, I'm not even referring to it in a financial sense, but I think it's mispriced in the way people look at their lives. And I think a great example of that is like starting a business. Um, most people consider that really risky, but I don't understand how you can consider something risky if you've, you've never tried it, right? Like the whole basis of how humans kind of think about risk is it's, it's relative, right? You think of risk of one thing compared to another, right? And if you've never tried it, it's almost impossible to know how risky it, starting a business is relative to having a career, right? Because you've never experienced it. You've heard other people say it, but they're only talking about because they heard other people say it. So like you're hearing like third, fourth, fifth hand about the risk instead of experiencing it yourself. Um, and I think you could try it out in a lot of actually low risk ways to understand if it's actually um, risky or not. Right? Like you can start a side business. Um, I mean, even me, like in college, like I had a drop shipping site that failed. Right. And I understood, okay, this business model is pretty risky. Maybe I'll try something else. Mm -hmm. Right. And you can kind of bounce from thing to thing to thing um, in a way that where you're, you're still working your main job or you're still in school or whatever it is. So it's pretty low risk, right? You're just kind of testing out entrepreneurship in a low risk sense. You figure out what's actually risky about it, what isn't. And then you realize that like a lot of the actual businesses you start aren't risky because you have the experience at that point, you have the intuition and your mind can actually compare the relative sense of how dangerous entrepreneurship is versus having a job and what the risks are in each. But the people who have never tried it, and this goes for anything, not just entrepreneurship, they have no idea how risky it is. They'll just say, oh, it's risky. It's like, what does that mean? Like your brain doesn't even have the data points to compute how risky it is. So I think what you're getting at is that you need to be really mindful and observant of who, who's giving you advice and if it's actually valid, right? Now, if you, if you hear that advice that starting your own business is risky from somebody who's failed directly, does that carry more weight? Definitely. Definitely. If someone's, if someone's, the, the, I mean, obviously that competence plays in as well. Yeah. Um, but I definitely could take that with way more weight if it's someone who's actually done it. Someone who hasn't done it, I, I think it's, it's might as well be like a fairy tale. Like it, they're just speaking nonsense. It means nothing. Why is the 401k mindset cancerous? That's a good one. I think it's cancerous for a lot of reasons. I think the major reason, and this is one of the, the things I talk about it, it's so, and I guess let's separate people into two camps, right? If you're fine with working until you're 65 and that's kind of your goal in life, sure. Like dump your money into a 401k, be my guest, right? Who cares? If you actually want to start a business early on, right? You basically say you make your first 50k, right? You have two choices with that money. You can either invest it in yourself by learning or starting a business or whatever it is, or you can put that into a 401k, right? Those are your options. So by choosing the 401k option, you're implicitly betting against yourself. That's what you're doing. Not only that, you're also taking away any reserves you might have if you want to do something creative in the future. Um, you're kind of getting rid of any optionality you have, right? Because you, can, you can't pull down that capital immediately. I guess you can if you take the penalty, but um, you, can't, uh, you can't start a business with it. You can't use it to learn. And in the beginning, those are all the things that have the highest return. Right. Learning is the highest return in the beginning. If you think about it, say you put 50K in the S&P or you get 12% return. Like, what are you going to do with that? Seriously. Like, it's, ten, it's, it's, it's no money. Right. You can't do anything. You made five grand. Like, it, it means nothing in the grand scheme of things if you actually want to become wealthy. So that's, that's one of my big issues with it, um, especially is, is really just early on. I think it's very, very dangerous. If, if later on you want to use it as a safety net or whatever it is, like, sure. I'm not really against that. I do think it's it's very, very bad early on when you have limited capital, you have limited options, and you're just kind of implicitly betting against yourself by choosing that option for a return that's extremely low. Mm -hmm. If you were getting a great return out of it, sure, that, that works. But I mean, a 10% return on 50K when you're 23 years old is like the most useless thing in the world. Right, right. Because it's such a small, sure, the percentage might not be horrible, but like it's such a small amount of whole dollars that it doesn't move the needle. Um, and by just for everybody who's listening, in case you didn't follow the implicit bet on yourself, what you mean is you don't have enough conviction in yourself to think that you can outperform more than 10%. That's yes, yeah, exactly. That's, that's what you're saying. It's also saying that you don't think like you can grow more than 10%. It's whatever it is. You know what I mean? You have the, the thing that people don't realize is it's a, it's an option, right? There's only two options in that scenario. You are, or I guess you can blow it on something else, which maybe that's worth it. But, uh, you can you're either put in the 401k, which is is what it is, or you can bet on yourself. So like by putting in the 401k, you are betting against yourself. And people may not view it like that, but that's exactly what you're doing. Um, so I, I think that's pretty important to think about. 
The other thing just I would add real quick about the 401k is that the thing I hate so much about it is how everyone's like, oh, just put in your 401k and put in the S&P 500. It's like, okay, but like, what did you learn by doing that? I think one of the biggest things people don't understand about investing is that you want it, especially in the beginning, you don't want to maximize return. You want to maximize what you're learning and the skill sets you gain, right? Because like we said, a 10% return on 50K means nothing, right? It doesn't do anything long-term. But if you learn, if you use that money to invest and learn skills that can create more money in the future than 10%, it's very worth it, right? Mm -hmm. So putting your money in the S&P blindly every single month no matter what happens in the market, you don't learn anything by doing that, right? Like you haven't gained any skills. Meanwhile, if I go and try and, and I did this, I, I tried to um, buy a deal. I won't get into the deal. And I lost all my money, right? I lost, I forgot what it was. It was like 30, 30 to 50 grand. I forgot what it was. I lost all of it, right? Um, and everyone will tell you, oh, like never lose your principal, blah, blah, blah. But I learned so many more valuable lessons by doing that. And I gained such a stronger skill set by doing that that I, I've, I've outperformed every single one of my friends who put their money in the S&P by probably 500 fold since then. It's, it's not even close, right? And people will never get that. They don't understand like the, the string of decisions that came into that. They're like, oh, you made a bad decision putting it into the real estate deal instead of the S&P. No, I didn't. I learned skills. Uh, I learned how to kind of start thinking through investments. My mind can now measure risk in a better way than people who've been putting the S&P blindly. They, they, don't, they don't measure anything. Their, their mind has never measured risk at all. They, if you ask them to put money in a different deal, um, they wouldn't know how to evaluate it, right? It's just a completely useless, like mindless task. And the fact that it's like, like glamorized and glorified, I think is, is a bit insane, right? If you want it as like a, a simple safety net, like, sure. But you have to admit you're giving up a lot to get there. You're not learning anything. You're not gaining any skills um, and you're taking away your optionality. And for me, those things are just, I think that's the worst thing you could do when you're starting out. By the way, that's amazing that you're able to use your, you know, whatever your loss of principal was, 30 to 50K on that first deal. That's amazing that you're able to transform that into such a massive learning lesson for yourself because I can probably name five people off the top of my head that would use that 30 to 50K loss in principal as a reason for them to never go into that business again, right? And that would that would scare them away from that entire concept of finding real estate deals on their own and having that kind of exposure. Um so I just want to commend you for that, first of all, but that's an amazing um, learning lesson for anybody that's listening is like, just because you fail at first doesn't mean that you should walk away, figure out why you failed and make sure you don't make that mistake over again. And I think that's the reason why no one has this mindset that I have, which in the beginning, you should not be maximizing your return at all on your investment. You should be maximizing your skill set and maximizing your learning. That's it, right? So like you're saying, right? Probably 90, what, 99% of people put their money into the S&P, right? The other 1% maybe do what I did, but of that 1%, every single person loses their money, they never invest again, they never do a deal like that again, so they don't get the benefit. So then no one really understands the concept because no one's kind of followed the process through. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think it's insane. Just, just that's from a personal perspective. Obviously I'm way riskier than others. Um, but if you told me you have 50K at age 22 or 23, whatever it is, and you could do whatever you want with it. And your choice is to put into a 401k. I, I think you're off your rocker. Yeah. I mean, then again, like if you, if you really listen to what you're saying, are you really riskier than others? Because if let's just say in a hypo, hypothetical scenario that the world goes to shit, like people who haven't developed a real transferable skill set to go do things on their own where they don't have to rely on anybody else that's the biggest risk, right? Like it's not that you've lost 30 to 50 K you lose 30 to 50 K. You won't make that mistake again because you'll never fucking forget it. Right. But like the people who, who aren't thinking deeply enough to try to go build these skills, like that's, that's actually the real risk. Oh, it's, it's completely, I I was talking about it more in the conventional sense. You're right. And the way I believe it, I think the path I've taken is way less risky than anyone else simply because of the fact that I actually have skill sets that I can rely on now, right? I think anyone else, if they get fired from their job, they're screwed. Like they're begging for a new job, right? Meanwhile, I've developed skills that are self-sufficient. Um, and obviously if the real estate market goes down, that's in a bad spot, but I can still build myself back up, right? Um, so I think self-reliance is by far the safest path. It's just one of those things where in the beginning, like you have like a year or two where it's the most dangerous by far. And then after that, it's the safest by far, but no one wants to take that year or two. That's, that's pretty dangerous. 
Yep. Yep. And I've been having a lot of conversations with these. If you go back to the last few episodes, I guess ever since I had a conversation with Lauren Weinstein um, a couple months ago at this point, but it's about facing that uncertainty head on, right? Like that is such a deterrent for 90% of people that the 10% of the people who actually do embrace that uncertainty at some point are their odds of success are so much higher just because the 90% of people just refuse to do that. Yeah. No, it's, it's like I was saying, because there's, there's uncertainty and they, not only is the uncertainty on the risk side, there's uncertainty on the return side. And when there's uncertainty on the return side, no one comes into Arbit because they don't know what to calculate. So it's, I mean, more for us, but. <laughs> I can't help but not ask the next piece of conventional wisdom for you to um, discuss. The concept of diversification versus having just a, a couple high conviction vets. Yeah, so. I think let's talk about someone who's starting out in the beginning, right? Because if you're, if you're already rich, this is kind of a different story. But sure. if you're starting in the beginning and you want to diversify, that just tells me you don't have a skill set you're, you're competent in, right? Because if you were competent in a skill set, you'd want to go all in on it. Um, like, for example, I know I can outperform the stock market. I know for a fact I can outperform the stock market and I have, right? So why would I ever put my money into the stock market where I have no edge, right? Just to diversify. I have zero edge there. Not only do I not have an edge, I'm actually way at a large disadvantage because everyone else has better data than me. Hedge funds have better data than me, pension funds, whatever you want to call it. Um, I'm the small fish in that pond, right? Meanwhile, if I, and this could be for any deal, right? It could be a business or whatever it is, or in this case, real estate, right? I know for a fact when I go into a lot of real estate deals that I'm going to make a lot of money for a fact, unless the world ends. Right? I'm going to make a lot of money because I'm coming in. I have the experience to underwrite it. I know what the basis is. I know what the returns are. I know what the stabilized yield is. Um, it's, it's one of those things where you'd be insane. Like once you're, once you're competent in a field and you know what to look for, you would be insane to diversify out of something that you know is a sure bet. Um, so I think the fact that a lot of people want to diversify early on is pretty much just a sign that they don't have skills and that they need to develop skills so they don't have to diversify. Once you, once you get rich, sure. I mean, diversify, right? Like let's not lose it all. But I, I think that's a different story. Yeah. So it sounds to me like you're saying that as an investor, you diversifying almost means that you don't understand the risk of the other investments that you're making, right? Because if you, if you truly understood that risk profile, you wouldn't be diversifying in the first place. It's the risk and returns, right? Like I, I'm not sure how many of your listeners are in the real estate field, but like my latest deal, right? It was stabilized into a double digit stabilized yield with a 2x plus DSCR, why would I put money in the stock market instead of that? Right? Like there's no reason. Yeah. So it wouldn't make any sense. Is that on fixed rate debt? 4.25. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. For anybody who's not familiar with real estate, that's a very, very um, safe investment. Um, but that's just an example, right? It doesn't need to be that. It's once you're competent and you understand like what the return profile is, what the risk profile is, and you could really mitigate the risk. Like that deal I just said, the, the, the risk was so mitigated. And I won't get into the real estate reasons why, but the risk was so mitigated that like your downside's low, your upside's really high. Like why would I, instead of say I had like 200K, why would I not put all 200K into that and put 100K into there and 100K into the S&P? Like, it makes no sense. Yep. I feel like the common thread that's been holding a lot of these things together is an implicit bet on yourself versus putting the ball into somebody else's court, figuratively speaking. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely right. I mean, I've, look, I've been relying on other people before. It's not fun, right? Like it's a horrible feeling. You'd, you're never in control, right? You want to be in control. Um, and I think that's one of the biggest things you should, should strive for because once you're in control, that's, that's just a sign you've achieved competence, right? It's almost impossible to get control without competence. Something that I, that I want to transition over to is um, kind of your, your perspective on the common trite advice that we should try to do things that we love. What are your thoughts on this? I, I guess I might be unique in this, but I, I can almost be passionate about anything. Like if it's <laughs> I, I, whatever it is, right? Like I could read about history. I could do a real estate deal. Like if, if you told me I was buying like a garbage business, I'd be passionate about that. So I think a lot of it's like people just convincing themselves that they don't want to do something um, because everything kind of, once you get down to it, there are a lot of trends that kind of underlie every single business, every single career. Um, I think I could have been just as happy as a doctor as, and, and a lawyer and a real estate guy, right? Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you kind of got to choose something that, at least in my perspective, that, that has upside potential, right? And, and obviously, if you're, 
a lawyer, you're kind of always working for someone else. You're kind of constrained by being billed by the hour. Doctors are just constrained by the whole system of the hospital most of the time. You can get your own practice and everything, but it's it's just a long, long drawn out path. So I think the idea that that you're only passionate about one thing is like complete nonsense, to be honest. Um, and I always think that even if you don't, it's not the thing you're most passionate about. Once you get deep enough in the field and learn all the intricacies, you'll at least be interested in it. So you think that you kind of have to spend enough time in an industry before you can realize what you like about it, what you don't like about it without making a judgment call on, you know, something that you found passion in as a child that like doesn't necessarily translate to a defined career path. I mean, I think it, it all depends on your goals, right? Like mm -hmm. what are your goals, right? If you want to, if you want to help people, like probably don't want to be a real estate guy. Um, it, it just, it all depends, right? If you want to be really rich, yeah, you better think about stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Did you ever give any thought to identifying a problem that you you believe exists with any specific industry um, and then just trying to develop your own creative solution to that problem, therefore creating value for people? I think it's interesting. I mean, this is going to be a hot take, but I, I don't consider anyone who takes on VC money and runs a business that loses money to be an entrepreneur. Like, I think anyone can do that. I could have easily gone up to a VC, scammed them for whatever amount of money, burned $1 million a month and then had a company that was valued at 500 mil. Like it's not hard, right? Like you just, anyone can run a company that loses money. Um, so I don't really consider that entrepreneurship. I would never do it. I, I, I run companies that make money um, and I want them to start making money day one. So I, personally, I think if the company can't make money day one, it's almost entirely useless. And I think there are some exceptions with that. Like you get some incredible entrepreneurs like Elon Musk who are building something really cool, but 99% of the time, like these people aren't real entrepreneurs. They want like, they want like their coffee by their desk. They want like the WeWork. They want the whole like thing. And at the end of the day, they lose money and have to fire everyone. It's like, it doesn't really make you a good person. There are a lot of examples that you can point to where that's not necessarily the case. I mean, if you think about it, the whole VC model is predicated on the fact that like, what is it? Only one out of 10 succeed. So like nine of them are losing all their investors money. Like, I don't know. I think it's like pretty dubious. That's fair. Hey, that's why we have you on the hot takes, right? Use the hot takes that people need to hear. <laughs> Um, speaking of hot takes, let's talk about the concept of relative wealth. Yeah. So every time I bring this up on Twitter, people like think it's like a happiness thing when it's just, it's just like an economic fact. Like, and I think people started realizing this, like during inflation, like if you give everyone stimulus, like your dollar is worth less. Like that just, that just is a fact, right? So, and this is one of these things that you almost have to like pretend it's like a closed loop system to explain it to people. Where like, say you gave everyone in your town like $100,000, like, does that help you buy a house in the town? The answer is no. Like, you need to be relatively wealthier than other people to get the actual house in the town, mm -hmm. right? And I think a lot of people don't get that. That's also another one of my gripes with putting money in the S&P is that every single other person you're competing against also put their money in the S&P. Mm -hmm. So you're not outperforming anyone. You did not gain any relative wealth. All you're doing is gaining money on paper, which yeah, you are getting a return. Um, but you're not getting relative wealth, which is the only way to actually get wealthy, right? And people will be like, oh, I'm getting a 12% return, but every other person you're competing against is also getting that return. Every other person who's going to buy the house you want is also getting that return. And yeah, I agree. Like the bottom end of the market isn't getting that, but that's not who you're competing against. Um, so I think that whole, that whole thinking is, is very flawed. And every time I bring it up on Twitter, someone's like, oh, does that mean like you're not happy and you're competing against other people? Whether you like it or not, you're competing against other people. Like you can't choose to not compete. A person's going to bid on the house that they want to bid on the house. You can't stop them by like, like pressing the pause button and like walking away. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I just don't really understand why people argue against that because it's kind of like an economic fact. Does competition drive you? Oh, yeah. I've always been really competitive. Um, played three sports going, growing up. Had two brothers really competitive with them. Been, been very competitive the entire way. Yeah. Yep. So you think competition is one of your most closely held principles in life? Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those things where you have to realize most, what most, I guess the way most people kind of act in life is they try and like bow out of the competition, right? You can tell they try and mm -hmm. press the pause button. They tell everyone they don't care. Um, I think that's one of the biggest copes in the world. You're like, Oh, I actually don't care about that. It's like, yeah, you do. Like you're just not good at it. Um, and I've, I've seen myself, I've done it before too. Now you have to realize when you're doing it. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's, it's healthy to be competitive. Like, I think if you play it, say you're playing a game of basketball and you're fine with losing, like, I think there's something wrong with that. I think there's something very wrong with that. 
Um, and this doesn't mean you need to compare yourself to every other person around, but it does mean you should have a fire in yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's probably where this whole implicit bet on yourself kind of stems from, right? Is because of your competitive nature, your inherent competitive beliefs. I mean, even with your brothers, right? You just mentioned that you've got two brothers. I'm sure that you guys competed against each other in a, in a variety of different ways as you were growing up. And I'm sure there still are competitive elements of your relationship. Um, but that's probably, if I'm reading it correctly, that's probably where that implicit bet on yourself and chip on your shoulder and kind of um, defiance of authority stems from. Yeah, it's probably part of it. I mean, I do believe to a large degree, every single person in the world thinks they're better than everyone else. That's kind of like inherent belief. I don't, I don't believe people who, who try and like pull the humble card with that. Um, because if you ask any guy like what they deserve, be like the fattest guy in the world, they think they deserve data supermodel, right? Mm -hmm. Like no one's like, oh, like I deserve worse than the guy next to me. Right? Yeah, you'd be surprised. I you barely, you, barely, you rarely hear it. I don't know. Um, no, I mean, I, I just think I think almost every guy and this is just extremely competitive, right? Like, and sometimes they hide it. Sometimes they try and cope by saying they don't care. Um, but I think almost anyone can kind of unlock that fire if they want to. Yeah. Inherently, you think competition is a necessary evil, and to an extent, you think it's really good for people. Oh, I don't even think it's. I think it's very good for you. I don't think it's necessary yeah. evil. I think it's. It, it plays into every system, right? Like it's, it's like capitalism. Capitalism is competition, right? It's the greatest game ever played. And like, yeah. obviously there's the, the sad side of that is like, they're going to be losers and the positive side is going to be winners, but like it pushes society forward, right? If society isn't competitive, you're dumb, right? Like you just lose to the neighboring society and they take you over. Yep. Yep. We have to be, at least in the system that we've created, we have to be competitive. We have to be better than the next guy. Have you read any Peter Thiel or Naval Ravikant by any chance? None at all. No? Okay. Well, the concept that I guess the two of them share and you know, it's going to be a lot more eloquent the way that they say it than, than how I'm going to paraphrase it. Um, but something that they both harp on is how you can kind of um, avoid or escape competition by just being hyper authentic. And I think in Peter Thiel's book, Zero to One, he talks about how if you're just trying to build what everybody else is building and you're competing with what everybody else is doing, you can't expect outsized returns and you can't expect to create anything novel or great because ultimately you're only going to be able to compete on things that people can already measure, like like price, right? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, I, I think there's a lot of truth to it, especially in kind of the social media world where you can kind of get lost in, in the sea if you're not authentic. And I think mm -hmm. the people who do the best are actually extremely authentic. If you look right now, like someone like Andrew Tate, I don't know if you know him, he's blown up across every single site. Um, I think he has, he's got to be the best mark in the world right now. I mean, just objectively. Uh, and he's just incredibly authentic, right? That's what drives him to him. He says what's on his mind. He's very brazen. He's outgoing. Um, and it just clicks with people. You know, there's so many people who, especially now, um, in the past few years, have just kind of been like caught up in the whole corporate speak, right? And that doesn't really resonate with anyone at a deeper level. Um, yeah. so you'll, you'll kind of get, you'll get the baseline, but you'll never get the outsized performance. I mean, his, I'm actually not in the group or anything. I think he has like 150,000 people paying like 50 bucks a month in one of his groups right now. I mean, you could, you could run the math on that, but like, it's, it's silly. He's making, he'll end up making more this year than like some publicly traded companies, you know? It's wild. Sorry. Who is Andrew Trey? I might, I might be like one of five people who doesn't know him. <laughs> So he's, he's been blowing up across all over. I don't, I'm not going to pretend to know him well, but he basically, I think his timeline is basically he was a kickboxer. He ran a couple other businesses. He's like kind of in Eastern Europe. Um, ended up really blowing up with basically runs this kind of like uh, Discord group um, that's been going crazy. But he has a ton of other operations. I think he was pretty wealthy before then. Owns like casinos, um, just a ton of other things. So he, he's been all over the place. Um but he's really blown up now, especially in the marketing sense, doing all these like podcasts and interviews. And he's kind of just found a way to like, I don't even know what to call it, like weaponize TikTok, where he just appears on the screen every second because he has so many people pushing it. He basically created like a, I don't want to call it an MLM, but it's, it's like pretty close to it, where he brings people into his group and tells them, um, it's the, the group is, the focus of the group is to how to make money online, right? So he brings people into the group kind of shows them how to make money online then says, but the best way is to be affiliate for the course, right? And inside the group, which is the group, I guess. And inside the group, he has basically like 
videos of all his old interviews that people can cut up and post on their TikTok or Instagram, whatever, to drive affiliate views. And that's all it is. He has 150,000 people pushing his stuff and getting more people and more people and more people. Um, and it's actually pretty brilliant in simplicity, just in the way that he was able to, because the hardest thing about affiliates usually is that they need to be really talented, right? Because it's, it's, it's hard to be an affiliate, especially um, one who buys like paid traffic or anything. But what he was able to do is he made the affiliate model so that anyone could be an affiliate um, because he made it so simple they could just cut and paste stuff that was already there. So it's, it's one of those things where you'll never see it in like a Harvard business case study, but it's, it's one of the most brilliant things I've seen in a while. Right. And you're saying the reason that he's created so much simplicity for these affiliates is because they can literally just duplicate exactly what he's telling them to put out there. So he basically has like a library of his content. I'm not in the group. This is what people have told me. He has like a library of his content and he's like, look, just take out 30 seconds, put it on your page and then use that to drive, drive it to the course. So he just gives them, it's, it's just ready made. And if you ask like people who are affiliates for like paid traffic or anything like that, it is incredibly difficult. Like people are so skilled, but he was able to use organic traffic to do it, which is generally harder. Um, and he was able to give them the content to do it with. So it's any idiot could be an affiliate for him now. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't take a specialized skill set to be able to follow some instructions, right? Exactly. Yeah. But it's one of those things. No one else figured it out. So you got to give him credit. Yeah. No props to that guy, Andrew Tate. Um, he's got us talking about him, so he's doing something right, right? Yes, right. he, he has everyone talking about it. You got to look on, I don't have TikTok, but my friends say you can't even like scroll down the app without seeing him. Really? Yeah. Cool. Well, I'll have to check it out after this. Um, you're someone who clearly has a really good handle on marketing, especially social media marketing and kind of branding yourself, personal branding, all these things. What do you think most people get wrong about how social media is in 2022? I think the reason most people are, are bad at marketing in general, and I don't, first of all, thanks for that, but I don't think I'm a good marketer, to be honest. Um, but I think the most reason most people are bad at marketing is that they haven't, especially when they're marketing like a personal brand or something, which is what you're doing. If you have like a Twitter account, Instagram account, you're marketing your own, your brand, is that they haven't accomplished anything and it's just very apparent. Um, so you can tell when someone's competent in something, you can tell when someone's accomplished stuff and when it's just like hot air. And just 99% of people, they're just blowing hot air and it just doesn't resonate. Um, and I think that's why it's so hard to grow. Like if you have cool life experiences, um, if you've done a lot, if you've accomplished a lot, you'll grow. You will. You could literally just have a, a tweet that says, I've done this and you'll grow. Right? The, the, the reason why these people can't grow is because they've done nothing and they spend more time tweeting than working. Yeah. So people almost have it reversed, right? Where they think that they need to build an audience and then go do something when in reality, it's the opposite. Go do something, the audience will follow as long as you put the time into building that audience, of course. Exactly. I mean, that, that's really what you do is your body of work does the marketing for you. That's the easiest way to market. Yeah. Any other way of marketing is hard. And I do think there's something to be said about like building the audience as you go. And I think that's cool. Like if you mm -hmm. give people like, hey, like this is how I'm building my company. This is what I'm doing. Like, I think that's really cool. I think it's one of the coolest parts about social media now, actually is that you can follow stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but you have to be doing stuff while you're doing it, right? Like you can't just be like, oh, like here's my path and it's like the most boring thing ever. Um, yeah. So there's two ways of doing it that I would say is one is like having the audience grow with you where you're doing something cool and they follow your path. And the other is having your accomplishments kind of speak for yourself. I think most people do the third way, which is like you have nothing going for you and you like beg people to buy from you and like doesn't work. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to do here is, you know, as I'm building out the podcast, as I'm having conversations with interesting people like you, sharing the lessons that I learned along the way with people and whoever tends to resonate with the messages that are shared will give me a follow and um, stay along for the ride. Which I think is, is the right way to do it. You know, it's, and it's a building process, but it ends up being pretty cool. Yeah. Yep. When it's all said and done. Um, I thought your roadmap for the future article was fascinating because these are all things that are happening in front of us in real time, right? Like demand constraints on the labor market or the flatlining of, of the demand and kind of the globalization that's happening in the macro backdrop, right? Where you can hire labor for a third of the cost um, anywhere across the world. Mm -hmm. These things are happening in real time. Um, obviously inflation, we're seeing the effects of it now, all that monetary stimulus, Fed printing. But I don't think anybody really took the time to piece all of that together and what it means for people like you and I, people who don't have access to the most institutional capital in the world and how we can position ourselves to 
have the most success and just and just create the best odds of financial stability for ourselves. Um, so if you want to give like a, a brief summary of kind of your thoughts on that whole macro overview, um, I think it'd be helpful before I ask you a couple questions um, about that article specifically. Yes, yeah, got to think about that. It's kind of hard to summarize, I guess. But um, basically, and I do think some of it's changed because of the way the Fed's gone, right? But the world's becoming more competitive, right? Everything's becoming more globalized. Um, and everything's becoming kind of more and more online, right? So that kind of leads you to two sectors, I guess. One of them is kind of the internet sector. One of them is crypto. Um, and obviously, crypto has blown up recently, but I, I still think it's it's a great sector to be in and probably even more so now that it's gone down. Um, and the internet is just, it's you can reach anyone in the world, even unlimited audience, right? So your, your upside is, is uncapped and it costs zero dollars. You can start a social media profile and spends your dollars and get have millions of people following you right mm -hmm. so the upside is just so high um and i think it's one of those things where you just need you need to have a presence on there right like i'm in the real estate field like you need to be hedged with things that are just so explosive like crypto and the internet is just such an explosive trend that it's just dumb not to not to be at least somewhat hedged by either buying crypto or running some sort of internet business like i run university online with a course like that's that's money coming from the internet, right? You have to be somewhat hedged with that just because it's so clear that's the way the world's going um, that it, it's just dumb not to be involved and it's dumb not to be exposed to it. Uh, the other thing I'd say is the information just available on the internet is just so incredible. Um, you can go on Twitter and talk to an expert in any field, right? Like I have some of my friends in there, the smartest people I think in, in their field, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I can talk to them for free. I can connect with them for free. Back in the day, you'd, you'd never be able to do that. Um, so to, to be robbing yourself of that by not being on the internet, I think is incredibly short-sighted. Um, and that's not to say I think real estate's a bad field. I think real estate's an incredible field. I'm going to stay in it. But I think it's very dumb not to be kept up to date. And it's very dumb not to follow the newest trends because that's where the world's going. You have to be paying attention. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think the the takeaway for the average person or, or the person who's trying to pay attention or somebody who even comes across this. I think ultimately your takeaway was that you've only really got two options. Um, it's A, learning how to create assets, right? Whether those are digital or if you're developing real estate, for example, or B, learning how to own and operate or purchase assets, right? And if you can't do either of those, then you're going to be left behind. Um, so I think that was the biggest takeaway that people should really pay attention to and kind of use as a cautionary tale. Yeah, no, I agree with that. You, you summarized it better than I did. Um, so it's, and then, yeah, I guess there's a ton of ways of putting this, but yeah, you, you bet you pretty much need, you need to be able to build an asset with whatever you're doing, right? Yep. So you need to be able to buy an asset, create an asset, whatever it is. Otherwise it's impossible to keep up. Um, the world's getting, it's so competitive. Um, wages have just been getting crushed compared to everything. Um, it's the only way to keep up, right? You really have no choice. And the only way to kind of be able to do that stuff is to be self-reliant. So it all kind of feeds into itself. Um, but if you run the numbers, basically, if you're doing the same, say in, at a real estate company, right? I'm making whatever, 200K a year, 300K a year, whatever you want to call it. There's mm -hmm. no way you can keep up with someone who's running their own company. Right, because every single action you have within or when you're running your own company is multiplied by uh, the sale value of the company. Right, so you're just so far behind, regardless of how hard you work. Say it's a five x multiple. Right, you need to work five times harder than the business owner to to keep up. Like, is, does that make any sense? You think you can actually do that? Um, so the answer is always no. And in real estate, it's even more pronounced because it's twenty x. That's like a five cap. Um, so I. I can do the same exact job that I did um, in, in corporate and do it for myself and literally make 20x more. And it's just, to me, that's insane. I think everyone who's, who's not uh, buying assets and who's not able to manipulate assets will just be completely left behind. And I think you were able to kind of, when the world wasn't so globalized and wages actually kind of kept pace, you were able to kind of slip by with just being the wage guy. And, and it wasn't as bad, but basically the top has kind of been blown off that. And once you're competing against the world, wages just inherently will have to come down. 
Um, yeah. And the only, the only place to be is on the asset side. Um, and the thing is, the thing that's great about this kind of theory is even if I'm wrong about wages coming down, I, I, I do think they will eventually just because you are competing against the world. Like you'll never go wrong buying assets. So it's one of those things where you're always right. Um, so it's, it's one of the reasons why I was so comfortable kind of putting that thesis out there is because I would always give people that advice to be buying assets and be able to manipulate assets and create them. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny, right? It's kind of the same way that you underwrite real estate that you're thinking about this thesis. You're like, oh, well, my downside still, I'm still going to own a ton of assets. So my the, downside, not yeah. really. the downside is that's the exact advice I'd give in any scenario anyway. So, and if I can add, I think it's of utmost important for people to understand the disconnect between how much time you can put into something and the leverage that you're able to utilize to amplify the effect of however much work you're putting into that thing, right? Like the concept of leverage is something that's unfortunately not widely understood. And I think people should really um, spend spend a lot of time familiarizing themselves with how to how to apply leverage at the maximum point in order for them not have to to not have to work five times as hard. Because that's just not practical. Yeah, but I, I think it's one of those things that no one gets it until it's too late. It's it's yeah. very hard to explain to someone, even even mathematically, because they they assume that the risk on the asset side or the business side, whatever you want to call it, is is higher than it is. And we've talked about that before on, on here, but I, I think that's kind of the calculus that goes on in their head, and they just almost mentally write it off. Awesome. Well, I'll definitely link to that in the show notes. I think everybody should. Give that a read. If anything, it'll be thought-provoking. Um, you can choose to ignore it, but thought it was really, really well-written and well-thought-out, especially for some of the events that you know we're witnessing right in front of our eyes these days. So definitely check it out. Um, Real Estate God, it's a pleasure having you on, man. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, I think a lot of people will get a ton of value out of this. Um, where can people find you online? Uh, pretty much mostly on Twitter, um, Twitter accounts at the real estate G6 or the real estate God. Um, I do have, I have a university, um, which basically tracks my progress as I build out a private equity firm. And I've been like almost a year since I left my job to build out my firm. Since then I've bought 48 unit property, uh, multifamily, 30 unit short term rental property and, and about to be in contract now and around 200,000 square feet of self storage. So hopefully that that closes. Um, and basically what it does is it kind of shows you behind the scenes, all the numbers, lets you ask any questions you want, their weekly calls. And uh, basically it kind of teaches you how I look at things so you can learn how to do it yourself. And that's kind of the entire goal is you can take all those lessons and like apply it to yourself and, and start buying properties yourself. For anybody who's interested in real estate, but also for anybody who's just generally interested in entrepreneurship or building a business, like this is hyper, hyper important information, particularly because you get a firsthand look as to your thought process on so many of these different topics that you covered that don't only apply to real estate. So um, I highly recommend it. Thank you. Thank you. Glad you like it. Awesome, man. Well, appreciate your time and uh, looking forward to catching up again soon. Sounds good. I'll talk to you later.